You are listening to the Financial Clarity for Doctors podcast by Finity Group, LLC, where we discuss the pertinent financial planning topics facing physicians and other medical professionals. Discussions in this show should not be construed as specific recommendations or investment advice. Always consult with your investment professional before making important investment decisions. Securities offered through Cambridge Investment Research, Inc., a registered broker-dealer, member FINRA SIPC. And now, here are your hosts, Rochelle Vanderzanden and Corey Janoff. All right, welcome back to Financial Clarity for Doctors. My name is Corey Janoff, joined as always by Rochelle Vanderzanden. Hey, everybody. And today we want to go against the grain a little bit, maybe take a somewhat contrarian approach to to common themes uh, or tidbits of of advice you see on online or in the interwebs, you know, headlines, et cetera, blog posts, and you know, some of these, I guess you could call them opinions, may go against what you've been told before, or maybe what you even believe, or or they might just you know fly under the radar and aren't talked about as much as they probably should be in some cases. Um, yeah, you know, but you know, wanted to to kind of go into we'll call these the financial planning hot takes and uh, and let's see where it takes us. So, Rochelle, do you want to kick us off? Yeah, I will say that a lot of times when we're starting with new clients, people get really focused on like budgeting. Like they want you to tell them you are spending too much on eating out or you are doing this too much or you should cut back in this area or this is adequate or like how much of my budget should be spent on a house and am I looking at too much of a house? All of that kind of stuff. And people want like real concrete numbers when it comes to budgets. Like they really want you to boss them around to a certain extent. But I think that budgeting can be very difficult and it can also be kind of overrated because, I mean, don't get me wrong, like if you can reduce your spending a little bit and start putting more of your resources towards your long-term goals, I think that's a great idea. But ideally, you can kind of approach it differently and make sure you're saving enough, you're putting enough away to the places that are really important to you and then, you know, the rest is kind of available for spending and at that point, like if you're meeting your long-term goals, if you're putting your resources where they need to be, and then you're spending a good chunk on a car or something like that, it's not a big deal because you're doing what you need to do. Um, I think another thing to think about with that is, I think it was, was it Carl Richard, Corey, that was like talking about how, you know, really your spending reflects your values. It's like, if you really want to you know, talk about what is important to you, look at where your money is going every month. And I think that might be one thing to kind of take a look at and maybe change a little bit, like just see if it reflects what you want it to reflect. And if not, maybe you can make some personal changes. But overall with financial planning, if you are doing enough for your long-term goals, it's not, it's not necessarily a bad thing if you're spending money. Yeah. I mean, not that we're anti-budgeting, you know, by all <laughs> means, put together a budget if it works for you. I just find that most people don't stick to them. They're like New Year's resolutions. Like, all right, we want to keep our entertainment expenses below this much or our travel expenses below this much. But, you know, either one of two things happens. Either you go over it uh, because, you know, we're human or you see it as a limit, not a or, or a goal, not a limit. It's like, ooh, I can spend a thousand a month on entertainment and dining out. Like, ooh, I've only spent five hundred, and we've got one weekend left. Okay, guess we're gonna have some fun this weekend. It's like, or you know, don't force yourself to spend the money if you weren't planning to. 
But um, yeah, the budgeting can be helpful. You know, for if you're on a really limited income, like in med school or residency, but you know, for most of you, once you get into that attending role, you know, let's let's be a grown up. Let's spend less than we earn. Let's make sure we're putting some money towards our <laughs> financial goals. And you know, as long as we're, I kind of look at it as reverse budgeting. Let's make sure we're allocating enough money towards the goals that we have. You know, retirement savings, maybe college savings, maybe paying off student loans or other debts, and you know anything else you may have. And you know, as long as those are on a healthy track, okay, go nuts, spend whatever you want with the money that's left over, and it kind of all mm -hmm. fits itself into place. Yep. And I do think one thing that can be helpful for people sometimes is not necessarily budgeting, but just doing a little bit of a spending analysis. Like I, I think some people spend without thinking about it and they don't realize at all where their money is going and they're they're somewhat surprised when they realize how much of their money is going to certain things. Um, and that can be really helpful. So if you just are one of those folks where you're not sure, maybe like download an app, look at your credit card statements, like all of that kind of stuff can just give you a better sense of where that money is going so that, you know, you can adjust if you feel like you're not on track to meet your long-term goals. Or, you know, if you feel like maybe your spending isn't reflecting what you want it to reflect. Yeah, just having some awareness there. Let's see, next one, detailed written financial plans are also overrated, in my opinion. <laughs> I, now, I'm sure there's some financial planners out there, maybe some compliance departments that'll disagree with me, but I think there's a good saying, uh, humans make plans and God laughs. Um, you know, there, there's so many variables and moving parts that go into a long-term financial plan. You know, you're telling me we're going to take you today, plug you into a software program that's going to estimate what you're going to spend on your electricity bill 37 years from now, what tax rates are going to be, inflation, investment returns, you know, your values, goals, where you're spending your money, and it's going to spit out based on historic investment returns, you know, a, a, a range of scenarios of whether we're going to be on track or not. And then we're going to save that plan and stick to it for the rest of our lives. Like, come on, give me a break. Um, I think <laughs> it's important to have a rough outline, you know, having a financial plan that gives you some general direction is powerful, gives you confidence and you know where you're headed if you're on the right track or, or, or not. But I think try not to fret over the small details and worry about getting everything precise. Like I mentioned, there, there's so many variables that go into it. The one thing we know about all financial plans is they're incorrect. They are wrong. Um, and the goal is just to try and make them less wrong over time. Because again, so many variables, like we don't know what your retirement nest egg will be 27 years from now. Like it, it's impossible to predict. We kind of have maybe a rough idea based on how much you're saving and what historical investment returns have been. But I mean, projecting 25 years into the future, like we're going to have, you know, a $10 million range of outcomes. It's, it's, it's nuts. Um, you know, and kind of going back to, you, you referenced Carl Richards earlier, you know, he was on our podcast, what, two years ago now, I think. Um, yeah. But anyways, he, one of his books, The One Page Financial Plan, it, it really try and, tries to distill financial planning down to one page where 
Uh, and for Carl, you know, using him as an example, he, he says he should have a statement of financial purpose at the top of that one-page financial plan, and, and his is spend time with family and friends, mostly outdoors, and serving in the community. And then that statement of financial purpose will drive all of your other financial decisions, whether that's spending decisions, investing decisions, like what's going to enable you to try and get closer towards that goal to where you can, in this case, spend more time mainly outdoors with your family and friends and the people you love. So, you know, try and, uh, you know, that get back to what the, what the main objective here of, of having money and saving and investing money is. And let's try and work towards that. And, you know, if you, if you continue to make a, an effort towards that goal, you'll probably be in good shape. Absolutely. I'm a really big fan of just goal-based financial planning in general. So if you're going to take the time to do, you know, a lot of this work, I think that's probably the most important thing to do, like at the very beginning, is just decide what you really want. Decide what's important to you right now, like maybe there's some short-term goals, but also decide, you know, what's important to you down the road and don't ignore that stuff because it will come sooner than you expect. Um, and then, you know, putting your resources towards those goals. But that doesn't have to be complicated. The piece that gets complicated is all the different projections with all sorts of assumptions that will change over time that, that will not be right and will have to be reassessed and reevaluated every year because every year things are different. But, you know, if you have a good sense of your goals and you're putting your resources towards those goals, you're probably on a good track. Yes. Next one here, we did a whole episode about a little while ago. Um, but your savings rate, you know, how much you save matters way more than pretty much anything else when it comes to your finances. You know, it doesn't really matter what you invest in, what types of accounts you used, how tax efficient things are. Yeah, those things can all help. And, you know, we want to try and be as efficient and optimize as best as we can. But, I mean, all that stuff combined probably only accounts for about 10% of your ability to achieve your financial goals. The other 90% simply boils down to how much you save in relation to your income and your expenses. You know, if you're saving a lot, you're going to reach your goals sooner and have more wiggle room for error. If you're not saving as much, the margin for error gets narrower and it's going to take you longer to reach your goals. Simple as that. As long as you save a large percentage of your income, you're probably going to be just fine. Now, you know, you could potentially get to retirement a few years sooner if you're, you know, optimizing things for tax efficiency and making sure you're, you know, rebalancing periodically and all that stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, your savings rate is going to drive, uh, drive the, the ship. Right. And I think you can look at that the opposite way too. It's, you know, if you're not saving enough, it doesn't matter Like if you're getting good returns. It doesn't matter if all of your money is in a Roth account. Like if you're not saving enough money, you're either going to have to wait a really long time to retire or you're going to have to retire and like dramatically reduce your lifestyle, which is not anyone's goal. So, you know, definitely saving enough is the most important of all of those things. I think another one is about mortgages. People love that, especially right now. <laughs> um, and this is kind of an interesting one. You know, everyone looks at mortgage amortization tables and they're like, oh, if I do this, then I pay this much in interest. If I do that, I pay that much in interest. And this number looks much better than this number. But 
Generally speaking, like sure, you'll pay less in interest if you do a 15-year mortgage fixed versus a 30-year mortgaged, but a 30-year mortgage is often a better bet than a 15-year mortgage if you're doing something productive with that difference and that, that savings that you get by doing the 30-year mortgage versus the 15-year mortgage. So, you know, if your mortgage payment is lower and you're like, yay, I have more money to spend, then the 15-year mortgage is better. <laughs> but, you know, if you do the 30-year mortgage and you have an extra $1,000 a month and you're putting it into your retirement plans or college savings or into a brokerage account, you will probably be better off doing that. Um, and I think that... Like there's lots of ways to do a combination approach too, but a 30-year mortgage gives you a lot more flexibility. So if you really want to limit the amount of interest that you're paying on that mortgage, you can still make extra payments. You know, if you end up having excess cash flow beyond meeting your savings goals and things like that, and that can reduce the amount of interest that you're paying too. But you know, generally speaking, it, it gives you so much more flexibility to be able to do those other more productive things within your financial plan, especially when interest rates are low as they are right now. You know, um, when we're recording this, interest rates are still probably hovering in that like three to 4% range. They might go up, you know, in the next year or so. That's hard to predict. <laughs> but, you know, interest rates are still very low compared to historical averages and compared to what you can potentially get when you're investing. For sure. Yeah, just ask your parents what their first mortgage interest rate was, if they remember. And it, you know, it's probably close to double digits. Um, but yeah, I mean, not that we're anti- paying off debt, you know, we definitely are, are we'd rather have zero debt than, than carry a large mortgage, but um, we're just trying to be as efficient as possible here. And if you, you know, do the, the math and the calculations that having a relatively low interest mortgage stretched out over a 30 year span, you know, if you're using the, the rest of your money productively, it can really work out in your favor, allow you to get into that house that you otherwise probably wouldn't have been able to afford if you had to save up cash for it or do a short-term loan repayment on. And then it allows you to still save for retirement, save for the kid's college, you know, pay off your student loans, reach your other goals in a timely manner. You can still pay off the 30-year mortgage faster than the 30 years if you want to. But, you know, the key is if, if we can, you know, be productive with our extra dollars, it can you know, help you achieve some of those other goals in a more timely manner. Speaking on the real estate theme, real estate, <laughs> I'm going to get some backlash for this from you guys, but real estate typically isn't a great investment. You know, a lot of the bloggers out there really try and promote real estate as a fantastic investment, partly because they're getting paid by real estate companies to promote their products. Um, <laughs> but it, I've heard both from friends and from clients, more horror stories about real estate than success stories. You know, more people I know have lost money on quote unquote investment properties than have made money. And those that have made money, um, the ones who've actually, you know, made a, an amount that they would say is worth the headaches involved is, is even fewer and farther between. Um, you know, there's a lot of ifs required for real estate to be a moneymaker. You know, if the purchase price is right relative to the income the property can generate. If you have good tenants, you know, that's a big one. 
um, low vacancy rates, you know, got to keep the property rented, leased, filled, if, you know, whether it's residential, office, hotel, et cetera, you got to you know, have the customers in the building to pay the rent. Otherwise, it's just an expense sitting there. Um, you know, if the maintenance and upkeep is minimal, you know, some real estate properties, there's constantly something going wrong with them. The roof needs to be repaired. The siding needs to be repaired. Pipes break. You know, we got to redo the floors, paint, you know, et cetera. You know, if you're in a good location where there's a high demand for your type of property and you can continue to increase the rent or the lease or whatever, um, you know, it doesn't always happen. Just look at some of the, you know, cities across America over the, the decades, you know, Detroit, Michigan used to be a, a, a bustling place. Now, you know, I think they've had negative migration over the last 50 years. Um, you know, the, the leverage in real estate, you know, it's, you know, the loan or mortgage on the property. You know, we talked about with the personal mortgages, you know, going with a 30 year can work in your favor if you're using the extra money productively. Same with uh, investment properties. It can help you, you know, you buy a larger property, charge more rent for it. Um, it can help you magnify your returns. You know, for example, if you're buying a $500,000 property with a 20% down payment, you put a hundred thousand dollars down um you know and if if the property value you know goes up by say 20 percent you've just made a 100 percent rate of return your 500,000 value went up to 600,000 you made a hundred thousand dollars on your hundred thousand dollar deposit that's pretty good a 100 percent rate of return is awesome but it works the opposite way you know if if the property value drops by 20 percent you just lost a hundred percent of your down payment you know your five hundred thousand dollar property is now worth four hundred thousand dollars your equity is wiped out so now if you sell it you get zero back um so you know it magnifies the returns but also magnifies the losses if things don't work out in your favor yeah, and that doesn't even mention like the costs that go into like buying and selling the home too. So, you know, maybe you can sell it at a hundred thousand dollar loss, but just to get rid of it, you have to pay a real estate agent six percent. You have to go through bank and do all of the different escrow and all of that kind of stuff. Like it all costs money, so it's a it's a pretty costly investment in the end. Um, and I think when it does pencil out, it's usually over a really long period of time, and so you have to be willing to weather the ups and downs and not everyone wants to be a landlord and deal with like, you're probably going to have to deal with evictions at some point. You're probably going to have to deal with some bad tenants. Like not every tenant is going to be good all the time. Um, and that that's challenging financially, but it also can be very challenging mentally if you're not hiring a property management company. And if you are hiring a property management company, then immediately some of that expected return is gone. For sure. Yeah. Now, you know, we talked about all those ifs. If they all, you know, if the boxes get checked, then yeah, it could be a good investment. But, you know, it's tough, especially in this environment, um, to really find a property that fits those bills. And, uh, you know, it helps if you have more experience in that arena, you know, which most of the people listening to this aren't experienced real estate investors. So it even makes it more challenging. Now, I'm not saying real estate's bad and you shouldn't have exposure to real estate. It's just, it, it's probably one of the least passive, passive income streams out there. It ends up being a lot of work, especially if you're doing it yourself. And if you hire someone else to do it, like Rochelle said, it just eats into the, the profits. Um, 
you can still invest in real estate through like a REIT or mutual fund or something like that. And, and, you know, just like you do with your other traditional investments and not really have any active involvement. So you still get exposure to that overall asset class. Um, but, you know, investing in single family or multifamily rental units, you know, where you're like involved directly in the, the operation. Um, again, you know, I've seen, you know, less success stories than, than, uh, horror stories in that arena. Absolutely. Yeah. I actually have a client with who's dealing with that now where, you know, they had a hard time getting a renter in and it was empty for like four or five months and then they got a renter in and then like first month the renter wasn't able to make their mortgage or their rent payment on time and it doesn't look great for them. <laughs> so, you know, there's, yeah, it, it's just not always a great situation and you have to be, be willing to, to cope with that when it does happen for sure. There are lots of other risks that we deal with in financial planning too. And I think there are some that people pay attention to more and some that pay attention to less. And I think a really good example is just like the risk associated with being invested in the stock market. Everyone's pretty well aware of that, especially over the last couple months. You know, we've seen lots of ups and downs if you've been paying attention at all. Um, I think one risk that people underestimate a lot is inflation. And maybe that's becoming part of our awareness now too. Like we hear that in the news a lot. I think short-term inflation is one thing, like knowing that everything's a little bit more expensive right now versus what it was last year. I think long-term inflation is harder to kind of comprehend. You know, it's just the idea that everything is going to cost, you know, twice as much or more when we're retired. And that is a, a really, really big risk. And that's one reason why it's just not a great idea to sit on money that you're saving for retirement. You can't just put it in a savings account. You, you're going to get a very minimal interest rate if you do something like that. And it's not going to be enough to keep up with inflation. So every year that your money sits in a savings account, it's losing value over time. And so you have to save so much more in order to be able to combat that. Um, and that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any money in a savings account. Like there is money that should be in your savings account in case you need it right now, like your emergency reserves, anything that you're going to use to like build an addition on the house or, you know, whatever short term goals you have, that should absolutely be someplace safe. But when we're talking about long term money, the stock market is a very appropriate place to be invested, especially if you're using like a well diversified allocation and there is absolutely risk associated with that. But it's like the best bet that you have of combating that inflation and hopefully, you know, getting even a little bit more return on your money than inflation is. For sure. The risk of inflation over time, and I know it's it's gained some headlines recently just due to year-over-year year inflation, but historically, it generally just slowly erodes your purchasing power, and you don't really notice it from a year-to-year -year basis, but over a 20-, 30-year span, yeah, cost of living is going to double, and you know that's a much bigger risk. The risk of outliving your money is, is the ultimate risk, and you know we need our money to grow to combat that. And, and for those of you that might be timid of the stock market, um, it, you're human. It's okay. You know, you wouldn't be human uh, human if you didn't have some some emotions around seeing your your hard-earned dollars potentially go down in value. But you know, just to put into some context, stock market goes down every single year. Every single year, it has declines, some larger than others. But on average, stock market goes down about fifteen percent a year, even though it finishes positive three out of four years. 
You know, if you look at any, so it's a roller coaster ride throughout the year. You're going to have ups and downs, even though you, you're likely to finish the year higher than you started with three to one odds. 75% of the time, it's going to end higher than it started, despite going down 15% at some point during the year. If you look at any five year rolling period in the stock market, about 88% of the time, it finishes positive. Any 10 year rolling period in the stock market, 95% of the time, it's positive. To put into context, that's better than Steph Curry at the free throw line. So any given decade, your odds of making money in the stock market are greater than Steph Curry making his next free throw. Like Those are pretty darn good odds, in my opinion. And the S&P 500 has never had a negative 20-year stretch. Not saying it can't happen in the future, but you know, throughout the history, we've yet to see a negative 20-year stretch. And that I don't even think includes dividend reinvestments. So... Um, you know, I don't even know if we've seen a negative, a 10 year stretch with dividend reinvestments, but anyways, anything else to add there, Rochelle? No, I think, you know, don't forget about inflation. It's hard to forget about right now, but long-term don't forget about inflation is the biggest thing. Yeah. I do think I like this last one, one last topic to kind of tackle, but basically like managing your expectations is like the biggest and best way to make sure that you're satisfied and happy you know like if there's lots of different examples but if you're expecting to roll into your attending job and work 35 hours a week and know everything that you need to know all the time and like not be intimidated or scared and just like power through it like you might be a little disappointed because you're having you're going to have some rocky moments it's going to be challenging at times but you know if you just expect it to be better than training <laughs> i think that's probably a good expectation or you know maybe an improvement over your training days i think that's probably a good place to be um, and there's lots of different examples, but I think with your finances, that's so true too. Like if you expect every year your your portfolio is going to go up like 7 to 9 or 10%, you're going to be really disappointed because <laughs> there will absolutely be years when it's down. There will be years when it's up more than that. But I think people tend to focus more on the times when it's not doing well. Um, and so that can be really, really challenging. So definitely manage your expectations in terms of what you expect, like performance to look like and stuff like that. You want to go through some more examples, Corey? Yeah, plenty of examples. I like, know. Just, Good ones in real life. Take the finances out of it. But like, you know, say you're going to plan a trip to Hawaii. You go to Hawaii to get some sunshine. And if it rains while you're on vacation the whole week, you're going to be disappointed. You know, if you plan a ski trip to Colorado and there's no snow, that's going to be a little disappointing. You know, if you're, you know, maybe you have some, uh, some food trucks near the hospital and you want to run out for lunch one day and, and grab a, a quick bite to eat, you're not really expecting much. You're getting food out of a car, kind of weird. Um, but if it turns out to be the best sandwich you ever ate, you're, you're pretty ecstatic. Um, you know, if, you, if you've got some you know, some administrative meetings you have to attend. You expect to be in meetings for three hours and it ends after 90 minutes. You're pretty excited. You're pretty happy that things turned out better than you expected. You know, Rochelle and I can relate to this one. If, if, for those of you with young children, you're used to them waking you up in the middle of the night. And if your kids actually sleep through the whole night and you get a, a, a good night's rest and you wake up feeling well-rested, your day is off to a great start. You know, that is a, uh, an unexpected gift from, from, 
you know, the powers that be to let your children sleep through the night. Um, you know, maybe you wake up initially panicked that something went wrong, but, uh, wait, why, why didn't they wake up? What's wrong with them? But, uh, <laughs> but no, you know, it's, uh, yeah, you know, the, and I think we did an episode about this not too long ago too, you know, the reality of the outcome in relation to what you expected that outcome to be, you know, if the reality is better than what you went in thinking, you're, you're going to have a positive register on the happiness meter. If, if the reality is less than what you expected, you're probably not going to be too happy, you know, or at least a little disappointed with the outcome. Yeah. So. And that doesn't mean you need to be super pessimistic all the time. <laughs> but, you know, don't, don't expect too much all the time either. Yeah, just manage the expectations. Like I think Morgan Housel's written about this a, a, a number of times. You know, the, the quickest way to be to be constantly miserable is for to let your expectations rise faster than your income. You know, if you kind of look back to your college years, you had no income, but you know, it might arguably was one of the best times of your life. You're having fun. You're eating top ramen, drinking cheap, awful beer, but you know, it, it was great. Um, you know, and then now some of you on the line are making high six figures, maybe even seven figure incomes. And, you know, you've got plenty of stresses in life. And, you know, if you expect everything to go perfectly, it, it, you're going to be constantly disappointed. So really try and temper those expectations. Um, I don't know if, if settle for less is the right word, but you know, try and practice being content you know, without the, you know, living the Instagram lifestyle, like, you know, it's okay to just have, you know, the date night be pizza and a beer, you know, it doesn't have to be a fancy steak dinner and a $200 bottle of wine. You can have just as good of a meal, arguably even a better meal in some cases with some, you know, inexpensive pizza and beer. So I don't know, Rochelle, any other thoughts? No, I'm all for pizza and beer, but I mean, going back to the hot takes, just a, a rundown. Corey says budgets are overrated. <laughs> Detailed financial plans are overrated. You can do it, but it's going to be wrong. <laughs> Your savings rate matters more than anything else. A 30-year mortgage is better than a 15-year mor mortgage with, with caveats. <laughs> you got to do something good with that money. And real estate typically isn't a great investment. It can be very challenging. That's for darn sure. And stock market risk is small in comparison to the long-term risk of inflation. Like, that's the big one, guys. And also, like Corey says, be content. End of story. <laughs> Don't worry. Be happy. Oh, man, we should end with that song. Yep. Thank you for listening, everyone. See ya. We would love to hear your feedback and suggestions for future topics you'd like us to cover. You can get in touch with the show by emailing podcast at thefinitygroup.com or by following Finity Group on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube at Finity Group LLC. You can follow me on Twitter at Corey Janoff CFP, Instagram at Corey Janoff, or on LinkedIn under my name, Corey Janoff. You can follow me on Twitter at Rochelle Finance or on Instagram, Vanderzanden Rochelle, or on LinkedIn under my name, Rochelle Vanderzanden. Check out all of the podcast episodes on the affinitygroup.com slash podcast on our Finity Group YouTube channel or your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to check out our financial clarity blog at the affinitygroup.com slash blog. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Financial Clarity for Doctors by Finity Group, LLC. 